The Navy plans to spend billions to acquire a variety of unmanned ships of all sizes, 21 in all over the next five years. The Government Accountability Office advises Navy officials to take a portfolio approach to bring more efficiency and balance to the program. We get more now from the GAO's Director of Contracting and National Security Acquisitions, Shelby Oakley. Ms. Oakley, good to have you back. Appreciate you having me. And I recently spoke with one of the program officials, and they have several programs going in parallel according to the size of the vessel, and they range from pretty small to almost as big as destroyers. And what is the problem with the way that they're going about this that GAO fundamentally sees here? Fundamentally, we see that the Navy really lacks a portfolio-based approach to these systems. And so while many of these systems, you know, like the large unmanned surface vessel or the medium unmanned surface vessel are managed by the same PEO, there are other aspects of this uncrewed effort that are critical to achieving the intended capabilities. And that includes things like what we call the digital infrastructure, the, you know, things that will drive the automation and artificial intelligence to be able to achieve these intended capabilities. And those are not managed as part of the program efforts, despite the fact that they're going to be vital to these platforms, these systems being able to achieve what they're intended to achieve. By the Navy taking a more portfolio-based approach, they would be able to better manage risk across this uncrewed systems enterprise by understanding kind of the progress of the digital infrastructure, understanding how they can, you know, balance and manage their efforts to be able to achieve capability faster. And a portfolio-based approach, what would that change? What does that mean in terms of how they do their day-to-day development activities here? Yeah, that would mean that there is somebody in charge, right, of the entirety of the effort that has kind of the resources, decision-making authority to be able to, you know, reprioritize and make decisions across the portfolio. You know, one of the outcomes that we've seen of not managing it this way is that this digital infrastructure hasn't gotten the investment, hasn't gotten the resources that it's needed to keep pace with the development of the platforms. And as I mentioned, These platforms need this digital infrastructure to be able to achieve their intended purposes. Right. Otherwise, they just end up as unconnected, floating things with nobody on board. Absolutely. And that digital infrastructure, is it your view that really there should be one basic digital infrastructure to encompass all of these? Otherwise, don't they risk interoperability problems and just duplication of effort problems if there's a different network and a different set of protocols, et cetera, et cetera, for each class of vessel they hope to float or have undersea? Yeah, you know, it's not my vision, it's the Navy's vision that that digital infrastructure would provide that kind of common operating communications AI-based capabilities for this fleet of uncrewed systems. And so that's why it's so important that, you know, it be managed at a portfolio level so that because of the effects that it's going to have on all of the systems and the way that it's needed for all those systems. So, you know, this digital infrastructure is going to enable the Navy to develop the autonomy using artificial intelligence to be able to kind of keep refining and adding capabilities 
to these systems. So, you know, if you're familiar with, you know, iterative, agile approaches to development, that's exactly what this digital infrastructure is going to enable for the Navy, that the Navy intends. We're speaking with Shelby Oakley, Director of Contracting and National Security Acquisitions at the Government Accountability Office. And there's also something overlooked about these, which also mitigates in favor of having some kind of a unified and interoperable digital infrastructure. And that is, even though they're uncrewed or unmanned, they're not autonomous. That is to say, somebody is driving that vessel. They're just not sitting aboard it. And there are mechanisms to evade and shoot if someone tries to board it and so on. So I would think that the people that are operating have to make sure that they can communicate with one another as much as the vessels need to communicate with one another for coordination. Yeah, absolutely. But in the long run, that's what the Navy envisions, that they're not remote controlled, that there is a very limited need for human intervention in these systems, right? And that's where the artificial intelligence comes into play and the importance of, you know, data collection and algorithms to be able to enable that artificial intelligence so that decisions can be made by the system and not by the human. And does their vision include to even firing decisions? That is weapons deployment decisions. Not yet. And that's one of the things that the Navy really highlights as a key challenge and a key area for continued understanding, right? Because there's ethical considerations and all sorts of things that come into play when you talk about remote firing or artificial intelligence firing of weapons. And so in the Navy's unmanned campaign plan, there's a broad discussion about the ethical considerations and legal considerations that need to be worked out if that would be the eventual goal. And if they don't have a portfolio approach to development of these systems, what do they have? A separate person over each of the, they sound almost like ketchup sizes, small, medium, large, and extra large. Exactly. There's different stakeholders, different folks in charge of different aspects of the program. And so while several of the programs are managed under the same PEO, not everything is managed under there. And the digital infrastructure is being managed completely separately. And so that's where we see an opportunity for the Navy to really employ these portfolio management practices and be able to bring a holistic view to the effort itself. And, you know, I have to say the Navy has developed this unmanned task force, which it sees as doing some of those things. But you know how it is, Tom, where the resources are is where the decision making lies, right? And so being able to kind of control resources and control decision making, I think is going to be key to be able to make strategic portfolio based decisions and keep these uncrewed efforts moving forward. And at some point, this moves out of development into maybe multiple copy acquisitions. And I would think that the portfolio management then would make the eventual acquisition simpler and easier and maybe more competitive. Yeah, it would certainly provide more insight into the readiness of the programs to move into that acquisition phase and then eventually how they will be developed, sustained, and operated. And so, you know, we definitely see the work that the Navy is doing with regard to prototyping as super important and really positive. But they do have some opportunities to bring better practices to their prototyping 
such as through portfolio management, but also through developing more credible plans for their prototyping efforts to show decision makers how they're using those efforts to mature technologies and how they're developing measurable criteria to be able to show that they're going to meet those strategic objectives and that they're ready to transition to those acquisition programs where there will be increasing dollars invested. Then review your main recommendations and whether the Navy accepted them. Yeah, we made several recommendations to push the Navy forward and bring more fidelity to these efforts overall. We have some recommendations focused on their cost estimating because as it stands, the money that they have identified that they're planning to spend over the next five years, a little over $4 billion, doesn't even include the digital infrastructure or or the cost to operate and sustain these systems. As we've been talking about, we made recommendations related to pushing the Navy to manage these systems as a portfolio and to identify measurable criteria for that portfolio so that the Navy can understand if it's achieving its strategic objectives for these programs. And then finally, really, we keyed in our recommendations on those prototyping planning efforts. We need to see more information about milestone and schedules and criteria that would enable the Navy to make good, informed investment decisions about transitioning these programs to acquisition programs of record. And just getting back one more time to that digital infrastructure idea, that could prove to be the thorniest part of development here, because if you look at other systems and platforms that have been highly software intensive, it's always the software that trips them up. You've hit the nail on the head right there. It's going to be the biggest challenge. You know, the digital infrastructure really requires people, lots of data collection and repository, analytics, algorithm development, modeling and simulation to be able to develop and provide, you know, these AI capabilities that are based on automation. And so it's a huge effort and it's a big challenge. And I think that's why we raised the issue that, you know, the Navy's a little bit behind in that. And so focusing on the platforms versus the digital infrastructure has been what has been the case. Now, as we hear it, the budget, when we get the details that come out, we understand there's going to be more of an emphasis on funding those digital infrastructure efforts. But really, that's where the capabilities lie. Shelby Oakley is Director of Contracting and National Security Acquisitions at the Government Accountability Office. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. 
Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on 
what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my my mind to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. 